You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 15. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. All right, let's pray, everybody. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you tonight uh, looking to the second half of our time together in this class. We ask yet again that you would give us the ability to uh, turn our thoughts, turn our hearts to a, a deeper appreciation of, of what you have done for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, um, tonight we're going to talk about uh, suffering, among other things. And as we do, we, we will be reminded of the various things that come our way in life that are unpleasant or difficult. We are mindful of the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation. We know it's true because we do have tribulation. Thank you, Lord, for not simply telling us or warning us in advance, for giving us your spirit and for giving us the example of Christ who suffered before us and showed us the way. We're called to this because you, O oh Lord, suffered for us giving us an example that we might follow in your steps, even though you committed no sin and no deceit was found in your mouth when your adversaries hurled their insults at you. You did not retaliate when you suffered. You did not threaten back. Instead, you entrusted yourself to the one who judges justly, even your Father. And, Lord, I pray that we ourselves would be the same when we suffer, even unjustly. We would not retaliate or threaten or complain but entrust ourselves to you. And Lord, even when we fail in that, we are also reminded that you bore our sins on your body on the tree so that we might die to sin, sins even such as grumbling against uh, our fellow man or against the providence as you send us, that we might live for righteousness. Lord, when we fail to do this, uh, we are healed by your stripes, by your sacrifice. Lord, I pray that you would give us then the privilege of living our lives in the light of yours. Thank you for your example and your strength, O oh Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Tonight we are going to spend the bulk of our time looking at the book of First Peter. But before we do, I'd like to just pause for a little while at uh, this midpoint of the course to remind ourselves where we're going and why. Specifically, uh, early on, our first night perhaps even, I pointed out that the New Testament has a multifaceted or manifold witness to Christ. We tend to see the gospel, to see the work of Christ through Pauline eyes. Seeing the gospel, seeing things through Pauline eyes means that we look especially for things like justification by faith, substitutionary atonement, death and resurrection, uh, the formula of the indicative and the imperative. Most of you know what that is, but let me just remind you. The indicative would be, because God has done these things for you in Christ, the imperative, therefore you ought to do these things in response. That's a valid formula found throughout the Bible, but it's especially Pauline. It's understandable that we would think first and last, perhaps, of Paul, because after all, he wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. His works, therefore, have the largest number, the sheer mass of Paul's works is the greatest. The number of pages 
is only rivaled by Acts and Luke together. The writings of Luke are, are close in length to those of Paul. But Luke's writings are, are, are not as uh, systematic. They're historical. And if you want a systematic summary of the Christian faith, you would turn, first of all, probably to the book of Romans, maybe second, more briefly to Ephesians. If you wanted the essence of the gospel itself, you might turn to Galatians. So there, there are reasons why, when we go to structure our thought, when we go to structure what it means to be a Christian, we turn to Paul first. It's not that we don't care about the Gospels. Of course we do. But the Gospels aren't as systematic. They are, they're a narrative. They're a story. They're not a system of thought. So we turn to Paul. The theme of this course largely is to try to attend to the rest of the New Testament as the rest of it gives its varied and, of course, excellent testimony to the work of Christ. Especially... When it comes to proclaiming the work of Christ, we could even say specifically that it's probably easiest to do that from the Gospels and from Paul. Gospels because they simply tell the story of Christ. Paul because so full of the death and the resurrection, the atonement and all those things. Hebrews is probably easy to use to proclaim the Gospel because there's so much in chapters 5 a little and then 7, 8, 9, and 10 about Jesus' great high priestly ministry in chapters 2 and 12, about which some of you wrote essays. Uh, chapters 2 and 12, uh, about Jesus as our, as our hero, the trailblazer of our faith. So Hebrews isn't so, so difficult. And the, probably the one that's hardest would be the book of James. James is hard because there is no description of the cross or the atonement of Christ, and that gives us a test case that we can use in uh, following the goal of seeing how all the New Testament books outside of Paul proclaim who Jesus is. Let's just do a quick review, if I can ask you to follow along with me. Then, how does the rest of the New Testament give unique testimony to the work of Christ? First of all, just again, Hebrews. Hebrews says these unique things, not against Paul, but we might say beyond Paul, are things Paul barely mentions. First, that Jesus is our champion, our trailblazer, who defeats the foe, the central foe, Satan, and also the subsidiary foe, the fear of death. He clears the path so that we can run the race to the end of the course. Regarding suffering, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the champion, and the perfecter of the faith. That is to say, he not only clears the path, but he enables us to run. Second, Jesus is our great high priest who offers the perfect and final sacrifice for sin. Now, tonight, we're going to look at Peter and see his testimony. His testimony is going to have uh, some things very much in common with Paul. He does have a notion of the, of the atonement, which we'll see in chapters 2 and chapter 3. So he says, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. But he also says something else. His testimony to Christ is especially focusing on the incarnation of Christ and the, the assumption, he doesn't even ever say it, but he assumes that Christ's pattern, life is a pattern for ours. The way he suffered, we should suffer. The way he endured, we should endure. And he never even actually says that. He just says, it's almost as though he says, well, of course, the life of Christ will be your pattern because he is the perfect man. Moving to the future, 1 John also has a theology of the atonement. It says explicitly that Jesus is 
a, a sacrifice of atonement rendered for our sins. It says that, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So John has that. It also has another way of testifying a little bit like James. John says that we can have assurance. John's interest is that we should be assured. First John's interest is that we should be assured that we belong to Jesus. And he gives three tests, not at all the same three tests as James does, although, of course, they overlap a little bit. They are true doctrine. Do we have a true and orthodox concept of Christ? True doctrine. True love for the brothers. And true obedience to the laws of God, to the will of God. Those are the tests that he gives when John writes to assure people that they do indeed belong to Jesus, the one who offered this sacrifice for their sins and dwells in them. Book of Revelation also has a, a really a very rich testimony to Christ. Some people think that the book of Revelation is mostly about the future, but, but I don't really buy that. I'm not saying there's nothing about the future. You'll have a chance to, to hear me out and, and uh, get angry at me, if you will, and, and uh, tell me that you're sure that it's all about the last seven years. But I think the book of Revelation is mostly about Jesus. And one reason is because the book itself says so. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 says, The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Now, the book of, Pro of Revelation is a prophecy, and the essence of it is testimony to Christ. The first vision in the book is a vision of Christ. Chapter 1 of Revelation. The last vision, chapter 19, is a vision of Christ. Or, if you want to say there's a vision of of the New Jerusalem in 20 and 21, it's a vision of the habitation that Christ has prepared for us. It's a testimony to Christ. The book of Revelation has a very rich Christology. It has actually more titles in the book of Revelation for the Lord than any other book. He's the Son of Man. He is the Living One. He's the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. He's the protector of the church. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb who is slain. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the rider on the white horse who wages war with his enemies. He's the eternal God who gives eternal life. He's the judge of Satan and his allies. He's the root and the offspring of David. He's the bright and morning star. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and I'm just getting started. The book of Revelation is full of descriptors of Jesus. But now what about the book we just finished, the book of James, which is arguably the hardest of the bunch uh, to look at. What can we say about the book of James? How does it testify uh, to Jesus even in all of its rich ethical teaching? First of all, or primarily, it is a book that testifies to a living faith in the Lordship of Christ. That's, that's what James is all about. It's not about the atonement. It's not about Jesus' death and resurrection. Those things are not mentioned. But he is deeply imbued with the idea that Jesus is his Lord. He's the teacher and the Lord of the church. James 1.1, he says right away that he is himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if he's Jesus' brother, half-brother, of course, by uh, physical descent from the same mother, he calls himself a servant or a slave of Christ who is his Lord. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, that we cannot hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and should still show favoritism. So if you really believe Christ is Lord, you can't commit that sin that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. 
he says at the end of the book a couple times that the Lord will come and return and bring an end to history, that the Lord is able to heal those who are sick who cry out to him and ask him for healing. He says that the, for, that the disciples have to follow the royal law, the law of the king, who is, of course, Jesus. So it's a, it's a meditation on the lordship of Christ. It has this specific form, and that is that, that the lordship of Christ especially has reference to his ethical teaching, the, the description of the way a Christian ought to live. And I'm going to ask you, to, you might, even, you might want to follow through, open up the book of James and just kind of follow or look at a few of the places um, that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to ask you to notice, or see if you can remember, if you have this kind of a knowledge of the Gospels, how many of these teachings that we're going to look at are found in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to give you the references, but even before I get them, maybe you'll kind of listen to two things at once. The majority of them are actually from the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as though James meditated upon the Sermon on the Mount so much that although he never quoted it, when he went to describe the Christian life, it just it flowed out of him organically because it was his. Chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that we should rejoice in trials. Rejoicing in suffering is mentioned almost immediately early on, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Blessed are you if you are, suffer because of persecution for my name's sake. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, The goal of the righteous is that they come to maturity or perfection. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says that we should be perfect or mature, come to perfection. That's the goal of the teaching. Chapter 1, verse 5 says we should ask God to provide us with our needs and ask Him to give us our good, good gifts. 1.17 says the same thing, which is what Matthew 7, 7 and 8 say. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and, you'll be, and, it will be, and you will find. Chapter 1, verse 22 says you must be doers of the word and not hearers only, which is exactly what chapter 7, of verses 21 to 27 of Matthew say, different words, but there are those who call Lord, Lord. But the wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock and hears his words to obey them. Chapter 2, verse 10 says that it's obligatory for the disciple to keep the whole law. If you break one part, you're guilty of all. And that's what Matthew chapter 5, 19 says. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abrogate the law. I came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle, the whole law. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 say, if you profess faith, you've got to act on it. And that's what, that's what Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23 says. If you call me Lord, you've got to follow me as Lord, or else I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, not many of us should be teachers because we all stumble in many ways. And the more we talk, the more we err. Jesus also said first, that we will have to render account for every word we speak, whether good or evil. Chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, you can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God, both. And Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. In chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 of Matthew. Sometimes, not only is the theme the same, but even the words are virtually identical well, or very similar, maybe I'll say, between James and Matthew. Chapter 2, verse 8, 
Matthew, James says that love of one's neighbor is the center of the law. And that's what, of course, Jesus says. The love of neighbor is the second part or the second great commandment. In chapter 4, verses 6 to 10 of James, he says the one who, humble, who exalts himself must be humbled. We've got to humble ourselves before the Lord and he'll lift us up. This is almost exactly what Jesus says. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and I will lift you up. He says that in 23.12 of Matthew and also several times in the Gospel of Luke. He tells us not to judge in James 4, verses 11 and 12, and not to judge or slander our brother, which is what Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Both Jesus and, and James single out moth and rust as the things that destroy our wealth in this age. Chapter 5, verse 2 of James and Matthew 6, 19. The Lord is coming, James says, 5, 8, and 9, as does Jesus throughout Matthew 24 and 25. James speaks against taking oaths in 5.12, which Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Take no oaths, they say in very similar language. And really, this isn't even the whole list. The list is longer. So what happens here is that James has meditated on the teachings of Jesus, and it's, just, it's almost as though it penetrated every pore of his being. Whenever he thinks about the Christian life, he thinks about the words of Jesus. And that's the way in which James testifies to Jesus, by testifying that he's the Lord of our daily conduct. So what we need to do, I said this in our very first lecture, I wanted to say it again because it really is a theme that I'd like you to attend to, that the whole of the New Testament has, each book in its own way, something unique, something special, to say about the person, the work, the lordship, the salvation of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.